0: appreciate these men leading us in worship this morning and doing a wonderful job of directing our hearts and minds towards God. The um, songs selected, the prayers offered, the thoughts around the table, all are those that enhance our realization of the wonder that it is to come into the presence of God, to be called His children, to be able to call Him our Father, and the wonder and beauty of that. This morning, I'd like to tell you a story. In fact, I'd like to tell you two stories like to tell you a story of two men. The story of two men. Two enormously different men. It's important for you to know when I go into this that I'm not telling you a story made up. I'm not telling you a story that I've created. I'm telling you a story that's historically accurate. I'm telling you about two men that history absolutely without any question affirms really existed. In fact. So um, accurate are their historical accounts that one of them is written extensively about by Flavius Josephus, which may not mean anything to you, but in terms of historians, he's one of the preeminent historians of the first century. And he writes about these men. He writes about these men as well as others do. And so I'm telling you a story about two very different men, but two men that really lived. While I'm telling this story, if you'd like to go ahead and be opening to our text, we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. John. Chapter 3, in the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 3, is where we're going to begin in just a moment. The first man is named Nikitamon. Nikitamon. Nikitamon's an interesting character. Nikitamon was a Jew. Nikitamon was a Pharisee. That was the sect of Judaism that he was a part of. Uh, Nikitamon was an exceptionally well-respected highly thought of man. He served in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court of the day, and you had to be the most elite of the most elite to sit on the Sanhedrin. Uh, Nikitimon went to the best rabbinical schools. He was he was just known all throughout the the Jewish world as one of the great thinkers of his day and one of the great teachers of his day. He was a purist, morally speaking. He had very, very high standards. When it came to his um, his practice in the temple and his worship, when it came to his ritual and his Judaism, um, he was absolutely at the top of the uh, food chain in terms of the Jewish world. Something else about mon that was interesting is what he was desperately waiting for the Messiah. He was yearning for the day that Israel would come together again as a great nation and would throw off the bonds of, of Rome. you got to remember at this time, Rome ruled over the people of the Jews, uh, the Jewish people. They were oppressed, and this was a man who was anxiously awaiting the time that God would throw off those bonds and chains and would once again restore the nation of Israel. In fact, it's kind of one of the worst-kept secrets in history. The Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, couldn't openly support revolution. They couldn't openly support insurrection. That wouldn't do with their standing as being so high and classy. But secretly, they were very much in support of just that. And even to the point that there's stories about Pharisees and men on the Sanhedrin that helped support and organize the Sicarii. The Sicarii was a group of zealots that tried to overthrow Rome. This is a very complex man. This is a very respected man. This is a very intellectual man. This is a person who everyone would have known and would have looked up to. Second man. Second man was a man named Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion. His story is drastically different. Ben-Gurion was Jewish by heritage, in fact, was well-schooled in the Jewish ways, but Ben-Gurion was a follower of Christ. He was outrageously wealthy, and he was unbelievably generous. During his time in the first century, there was all kinds of problems with disparity of income and wealth. Many people were suffering hunger. We see that in the New Testament on occasion when there were great efforts made for people to send money to Jerusalem because the people were in famine. There were efforts made by the church in Jerusalem to feed those who were poor, the widows. Well, in the midst of all of this hardship, Ben-Gurion was a great, selfless, and generous man. It is said that he gave away vast portions of his wealth, feeding the Jews that were hungry, but not just the Jews. Ben-Gurion was also known for his sympathy towards and his generosity for the Romans. Even Gentile families, even Roman families living in Jerusalem that would have been hated by everybody else, Ben-Gurion went out of his way to make sure they were provided for. He wanted nothing more than peace and prosperity and kindness and the message of Christ to permeate his people and the world. Well, he could see that the trouble the Pharisees were causing and the trouble that the insurrectionists and the zealots were causing was going to come to head. It didn't take a prophet to be able to see that eventually there was going to be bloodshed. There was going to be problems between the Jews and the Romans. And there was this mounting tension, this mounting anxiety everywhere. He wanted to head that off, and so he wrote letters to the high priest, and he wrote letters to the emperor, and he, he offered to negotiate peace, and he pleaded with them. He said, there's going to be terrible bloodshed, and innocent people are going to die. Let's not do this. But we know how the story went on. They did do that, and great, terrible tragedy befell the city of Jerusalem. They besieged the city, capturing everybody in it. Well... As quickly as those could who had means, they fled the city. And they encouraged Ben-Gurion to flee the city, and he did not. He said he was going to stay right here and see how he could help. And as more and more people started dying of starvation, he gave more and more money to provide for and protect people from starvation, feeding vast numbers of people right up to the very end. When in fact, in those final days of the Roman invasion he was killed along with so many of the people that he had given up all of his wealth to protect. Two very interesting men. A Pharisee and a Christ follower. A man of power and greed, a man of selflessness, and a man of generosity. What's very interesting is that as polar opposite as these two characters are, you probably have already guessed, it's the same guy. It's Nicodemus. It's the man we're introduced to in John chapter 3. The first is the Greek pronunciation of his name. The second is the nickname that he was given by the Christian people. His is a story of absolute and amazing transformation. From what he was to what he became is a story that's almost unprecedented in in the annals of history of of how this man, Nicodemus and how he... Everything he represented, the hyper-nationalistic, over-the-top religious elitism and separatism became this man of such enormous generosity and love and grace. How it was that a person who was so bent on on, uh, killing all the Romans became the one who tried to negotiate peace with the Romans. How could a transformation of this magnitude take place? How could this two people be the same man? Well at least the starting point for an answer to that question comes to us in our text today. This man, Nicodemus, from what we know in Scripture, introduced to us here in John chapter 3, in this introduction with Christ that we're going to look at this morning. We circle back around to see him again in John chapter 7 as he's speaking before that very Sanhedrin that he was a member of and asking them to think carefully about the oppression of Jesus and the apostles not wanting to put them to death. We also see him later on in John 19, being the same one who comes after Jesus' crucifixion with Joseph and collects the body of Jesus and entombs him carefully and, and lovingly at his own expense. How was it that Nicodemus became Ben-Gurion? Well, at least part of it starts in John chapter 3, in the introduction to Jesus Christ. It goes this way. Follow along in your Bibles if you would. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? And Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound that it makes, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus replied, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know, and we testify about what we have seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. If I have told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and the only Son of God. Now this is the basis for judging. And the light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light, so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. This passage describes the turning point in Nicodemus' life. From one man to another, from one person to another to become a completely different person. And there are some beautiful details in this story that I think will give us some insight as to how a transformation like that takes place. How does a transformation that significant occur? Now, I want to be real clear about something on the outset. This passage contains what I believe to be probably the single most important verse in the entire Bible. I would say it's probably the most well-known verse in all of the entire Bible. It is an absolute gem. Someone has called it the gospel in a verse, and it really is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is an absolute beautiful, beautiful passage so important it is, and so great, that we're going to have a whole sermon dedicated to it shortly. This morning, I want us to look at the interaction of Jesus and Nicodemus, specific to his transformation, and how it was that he came to understand what the kingdom of God really means. In this passage, Jesus is going to use some motifs. He's going to use some some buzzwords, some different ideas that resonated with Nicodemus as an Old Testament scholar and resonate with us as people of the New Testament. We are going to understand these symbols in very different ways, but they're going to be very powerful to us. Throughout this passage, there are all these different illustrations, images, and allusions to what we clearly identify as baptism. Baptism, as you well know, is that wonderful event where we are baptized into water. We're buried into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, having our sins cleansed and forgiven, rising up out of those waters, a new creation born again of water and the Spirit. But we have to remember in Nicodemus' day, that had not yet occurred. Jesus had not died and been buried and resurrected. And so this image to him was very powerful. And yet, it's very powerful to us in a different way. Let me explain why that's significant and how that works. The Bible is filled with all kinds of examples of teachings and prophecies that have many different unfolding meanings. uh, Multifaceted. They're different to different people at different times. For example, many times in the Old Testament, the Jewish people find themselves in exile or being oppressed by a foreign nation. And the prophet will come and God will say through the prophet, I'm going to break your bondage, I'm going to break your chains, I'm going to free you from your slavery, I'm going to free you from oppression, I'm going to restore back to you the kingdom of Israel. And in short order, God through his grace does just that. They come home from exile, they they push back the oppressed people, God overturns the, the, the wicked people that are causing them such trouble, breaks their bondage, breaks their slavery, and they're free once again. And so the people in that moment say, see, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. But fast forward hundreds of years, and you and I look at those same verses, and we read the New Testament writers who say those were speaking also and ultimately about Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he came to break the bonds of slavery, to break us from our oppression, to free us from our sins, which is the truest form of oppression, and to defeat the great enemy of us all, Satan and death. And those prophecies meant something to the immediate audience and they mean more to us in perspective. We have a bigger view. The same thing is true here. What did Nicodemus see and what do we see in these illustrations? Now I want to remind you, it must have been something pretty profound because the transformation of his life is amazing. So whatever it was that spoke to him must have spoken to him in a really impactful way. And let's see, let's see what it is. The first image that is talked about here is the image of birth, the image of birth. And those of us that have, those of you who have experienced firsthand birth, let me first of all say, and and if it were up to men, population of the earth would have ceased a long, long time ago. That's just the reality of the matter. And for those of you who have witnessed childbirth, wow, right? I mean, goodness sakes, what an amazing and horrifying event. And once again, I would say, that if indeed it was up to us, we would have ceased to be a long time ago. When you talk to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament perspective, of the idea of birth, there is a theme that is continually being brought forward with the image of birth, and it is the image of a new kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 66, among other places, there's this beautiful passage where it talks about a woman in labor. And, and what while she's in labor, she gives birth to a son. And what is that son? That son is the new kingdom. And God uses this prophecy all throughout Old Testament scripture to talk about the fact there's a new kingdom coming. There's a new kingdom coming, a kingdom that you're going to be a part of. And it's like the very cosmic universe is now laboring in birth pains ready to deliver that new kingdom. And that new kingdom burst on the scene with Jesus Christ and the presentation of the kingdom of heaven on earth that he brings. That image of birth would have meant something very clear and very powerful to Nicodemus. I remember these images. I remember these teachings. And you're telling me that it's here and that I can be born again, born of above, born into this new kingdom. You see, you and I, when we hear those words, we know what that was alluding to. And the fact that when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we are born again, or more accurately to the translation, born from above. And so the image of baptism to us is powerful. But the image of the new kingdom was powerful to him. And I would suggest that our understanding of the new kingdom is critical to our understanding of baptism. Second, he talks about water. Born of water. Again, this image of water was something very powerful to the ancient people. you got to remember they lived in a, a place where it was very dry, very, very arid. It, it was dry, parched ground. And you can just envision with me what it would look like to have dry, parched ground. The ground is cracked and crumbly and and lifeless. And this rain that has been so desperately wanted and desired comes and nourishes the earth and softens the earth and, and almost, as it were, heals the earth and allows crop and once again productivity to take place. Think of the beauty, the magnificence of water on a parched ground. So oftentimes that was the image in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44 God looking forward to this new kingdom coming, be instituted by the Messiah, by the Christ. He says in verse 3, I will pour water on the parched ground. I will cause streams to flow on the dry land. I will pour my spirit into your offspring and bless your children. He goes on to talk about children growing up like trees and grass like grandchildren. It's a beautiful image. But what's he talking about? The coming of this new kingdom. When Jesus says you're born of the water... Nicodemus would have remembered those teachings and those prophecies, the water, the new kingdom, the new, fresh, life-giving picture of God pouring himself into his people in a new and special way. When you and I see the water, we see the image of the water, the baptism. And we see that, and to us it's very clear, born again of water, certainly. It's a beautiful illustration of what Nicodemus could not possibly know, the magnificence of what we can see. He understood it to be the kingdom. We understand it to be baptism, which brings us into the kingdom. Third, the picture of the spirit. The picture of the spirit. This word spirit in the Greek is pneuma, um, breath. Think pneumonia, breath. That's what that word means, pneuma. In the Old Testament, it's a fun word. It's ruach. And you got you got to kind of choke to say it, which is really funny when you think about the word for breath requires you to choke, but that's another point for another day. Um, Ruach in, is first introduced to us. The word spirit, the word breath, the word wind, it's all the same word. It's introduced to us for the first time in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, this is of course the story of God creating the universe, and he says in verse, in verse 7 of chapter 2, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground, here it is, breathed the breath of life, the Ruach, into his nostrils and the man became a living being. That picture, breath, spirit, wind of life, what that literally is talking about is a gasping at the end of being out of breath. It's being... (sighs) It's a breath that just shudders through you and brings life back. It restores you back to life. It's that breath that if you've ever... You know, picture a dying person lying on their deathbed and the breath has gotten so shallow and so shallow and it's finally stopped and then there's this, <gasps> and they sit up. How amazing that would be. That's, that's the word. That's the word. Spirit, breath, wind. It's a powerful image. It's breathing new life. It's restoring a life that's dying. It's bringing life where there is no life. That's the picture that's being presented here. And from the very beginning when it talked about the creation of man, that's what the breath was. That's what the spirit was. To put life where there was not life. And again, I know we belabor a point, but this is used to refer to a coming kingdom. A new life, a new spirit, a new breath. A people who were cold and dead are brought to a new life, a revitalized life. And that's going to come with the Messiah. That's going to come with the Christ. That's going to come with the kingdom that he brings. And you and I know that we're baptized in the water and the spirit. A restorative deep breath on the soul level that brings life where there was death. That brings newness where there was, well, where there was fragility and age and corrosion. He saw the kingdom. We see baptism as the entrance into that beautiful kingdom that God came to present. We're going to close with this one thought. I've only got a couple more minutes to share with you, but I hope you'll stick with me. It gets a little deep, but I think it's going to be really helpful to you. Everything to this point has been paralleling what we see these symbols as and what Nicodemus saw these symbols as, and recognizing that in reality we're seeing the same symbols. We see them so often as pictures of baptism, which they absolutely are, but those pictures of baptism bring us into the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is what was transformational in the life of Nicodemus. The life of Nicodemus was transformed by an invitation of Jesus Christ to come and know a new kingdom. And you and I today are invited to come to know a new kingdom, to be a part of a new kingdom. And the excitement and exuberance and restorative restorative power that that offered to him is the same thing that it offers to us. Let, let me explain what I mean. I think this story is really a story story. Not about soteriology, but about realized eschatology. Okay. Everybody just, if you weren't asleep at that point, you just, I'm gone. I'm out. give Give me a second. I can explain it. It's really a lot simpler than it sounds. Soteriology. Soteriology. Big, huge, fancy word that theologists use. And they use this word to mean the study of salvation in that final day. On the day of judgment. There will be a day there will be a day that you and I will stand before the judgment seat of God and he will open up the book of life and he will read to us everything that we've ever done. And it says on that day that he's going to say to some, welcome in my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And there will be a path of many that will go to heaven. And sadly he will say to others, you, I don't know. I never knew you. I never knew you. And he's going to tell them, sadly, that their destiny is hell. And they're lost. Soteriology is the events of what's going to happen on that fateful day somewhere in the future down the road I would suggest that's not what this story is about This story is about realized eschatology Eschatology is the study of the end times guess what we live in the end times We're here right now this morning in Bible class Josh was talking about the idea that we are in the end times We are presently living in the end times the final dispensation I think you said, and that's exactly right. We're living in the end times. Realized eschatology says it is manifest now. Because we are living in the the, the end times. We are in the kingdom now. The kingdom of God is not something out there somewhere down the road in the future that we'll be a part of. The kingdom of God is something that we're entered into and a part of now. Let me share with you why I think that is. John, John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, I write these things so that you will know you have eternal life. Notice he doesn't say I write these things so that you know that someday in the future you will get eternal life. He says you have it now. You have it now. In Mark chapter 1, when John the Baptist came, when Jesus came on the scene, he said the kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's so amazing and what's so remarkable about the story of Nicodemus is Nicodemus was invited by Jesus Christ to come into a kingdom that is now. And his life reflected that change. Nicodemus did not hear this story as except Jesus and somewhere down the road in the faraway distance, in the future, there's a a get out of hell free card that you've been stamped. There's this cosmic... um, Eternality insurance that's been and you just in the meantime in the meantime, just try not to get in too much trouble How sad? How sad that so many Christians go through their whole lives with this picture uh, of of Christianity as being I was baptized therefore someday in the future I will be saved and in the meantime. I just got to try real hard not to mess it up too bad That's not what God saves us for That's not what it means to be added into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is active involved, engaged, moving forward, actively in the role of pushing back the gates of hell in this world and expanding the kingdom for Christ. Nicodemus was not transformed by a promise of a reward in the future alone. It was the opportunity to live for Christ today. How do I know that? Reflect on his story. How did he live his life? as a wildly transformed person. Generous where he had been greedy. Uh, Gentle where he had been harsh. Accepting where he had been judgmental. Loving where he had been hateful. The fruits of his life demonstrate a transformed aspect of what he was living for and how he was living. He'd been added into a kingdom that changed who he was and what he did. Jesus, in this interaction with Nicodemus on several occasions, talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that message resonated with him powerfully. My friends, I have to ask, does a recognition that you've been invited to become a member of the kingdom of God resonate with you powerfully? If you are a member of the kingdom of God, if you have named Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have put him on in baptism, if he has become the centerpiece of who you live and why you live, are the fruits of your life in keeping with that? Does your life demonstrate a transformation, a change? Does your life life demonstrate kingdom living now? Are you excited every morning to wake up knowing that you are a member of the kingdom of God on earth with special opportunity to expand his kingdom and serve him today. Nicodemus was. His life showed it. The fruit of his life demonstrated it. And the invitation to be a part of that kingdom transformed him greatly. Nicodemus to, to Ben-Gurri. And I wonder about us. Who were you before you were invited into the kingdom of God? Who were you before you heard the wonderful story about how Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on a cross to forgive your sins, to give you an opportunity, an entryway into the kingdom of God? What typified your life? What was the purpose of your living? What were the goals and expectations and dreams that you held on to? And now that you have accepted that invitation, how have those changed? For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. Those words amazingly, powerfully, and timelessly capture the sentiment of an invitation that continues to resonate in the kingdom of God, even now. This is the message that Nicodemus needed to hear. This is the message that I need to hear. This is the message that you need to hear. This is the message our world needs to hear, because this is a transformative message of a God who loved you enough to send a son to die for you, to place you into a kingdom where you in turn can become his hands and feet into a world that so desperately needs the light that he brings and that we can project. You know, this morning, two questions to ask you with as we leave. And it's just this. If you are a member of the kingdom, what transformation has that brought about in your life? how has that, how does that on a daily basis affect what you do and how you live and what's important to you? And if you never have, can I just appeal to you, honestly to say, he loved you so much that he gave his own son because he could not imagine eternality without you in it. That's not a transformative message. And we just might as well close up the doors and go. Because that's it. And this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never put him on in baptism, if you've never stepped into that kingdom, I've got to let you know there is nothing greater that we would love to witness, celebrate, and enjoy than talking with you about that. Maybe it is this morning that you need prayers. Maybe you have burdens on your heart. Maybe there's a way that we can support you, be with you, be a brother and sister to you. Any need you have this morning, we want you to know our leaders stand right here in the back of this room, and we would love nothing more than to pray with you, talk to you, study with you, and see how we can help you in your further walk with Jesus. Let's stand together and sing as we...